My name is Penny Lacasso and I am the world's first happiness hacker. Imagine a world where human happiness and well-being drove our decision making. A world where technology was used to amplify human potential rather than replace it. The Human First podcast is designed to encourage you to explore your curiosity about the future of humanity. Our conversations are focused on building skill in intentional adaptability, creating the foundation to positively influence the future for yourself, but also for others. Join me here each week as we put humans first. everyone. My name is Cherie Rubenstein. I am the founder and CEO of OneRoof. Um, OneRoof is Australia's leading co-working space dedicated to women-led businesses. We're currently sitting in um, that space right now. We have 85 businesses working in this space um, with a, a big event space as well where we do lots of events and um, a really big, uh, you know, the, the important part about OneRoof is that it's much more than a co-working space. This is an environment that gives women the greatest chances of succeeding in business and so we do everything we can to provide the tools, the resources, the network everything to ensure that women really thrive and we're on a mission to make Australia the best place in the world to be a female entrepreneur <laughs> and I am very excited to be sitting next to my dear friend Penny Lacasso. we're doing a reverse interview um, today so I am the interviewer and Penny is the interviewee Penny is the um, founder of Be Kindred a happiness hacker, a thought leader, um, an incredible human being and done a lot of incredible things. Maybe you want to say a bit more about what you do and then I'll ask you some questions. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I call myself a happiness hacker and the reason I do that is because uh, four years ago when I turned my life upside down in pursuit of happiness and I realised there was some significant fears and changes that I needed to step into, um, I started to look around to see who was out there that could help me do that and what I realized pretty quickly was that there was no education company to teach me how to become adaptable um, off a foundation of intention and happiness and support me in creating the change to realize that and when I couldn't find it I was like well I'm going to create it and I'm just going to make a crazy title mm. and um, that was kind of the beginning of the journey and so where I'm at now, and I always say with the entrepreneur, as you would know, is never where you where you start is never where you end, and it's never where you are twelve months, two years down the track. It's such an evolution, both personally and professionally. And so, where I am now um, is really basically I am teaching people how to high grade what we're calling an adaptability quotient. So, in a world of consistent uncertainty, in a world where we're experiencing exponential growth in technology, when we know sixty five percent of the jobs that exist today won't exist by the time my eight-year-old gets into the workplace. Mm. How the hell do you skill people mm. um, to actually prepare for that and be able to remain relevant? Mm. Uh, and so I believe, as someone who comes off a foundation of um, change and personal growth, the, the best thing we can do is skill people in adaptability. Um, and so that's what I've started to do. And working with some of the biggest companies now in the world, um, professional community groups, and, uh, you know, starting to create that change so that people can actually thrive and not be left behind. Yep. Oh, I love it. And I know Penny so well, but I still always have a million and one questions that I can ask you. 
Um, I'm going to start with uh, a question that you actually often start with when, and I've seen you do this many times, when you give talks, when you, you know, we've had dinners together and Penny will get everybody to stop and turn to the person next to them and the first thing she'll say is, who are you as a human being? Beyond, you know, your work, your relationships, whatever it is, who who are you at your at your core? So Penny, who are you as a human being? <laughs> I change my answer every time. <laughs> you probably answered it many times. Yeah, because I constantly think about this and I think it's a good thing even if someone doesn't ask you to ask yourself. And so I think first and foremost, I'm a mother and that motivates so much of what I do because the fact that I'm now responsible for the life of someone else and you know, and their future to the extent that I can influence it, um, yeah, I think the fact that I'm a mother is a huge part of my makeup. Um I am also uh, a devout yogi, be it Bikram or Yin. I find that for me, um, the most amazing stuff happens when I sit in stillness. And I still, after nearly eight years of practice, find it really freaking hard. And there's a reason why mindfulness and being present is really hard. Um, so I'm also someone who is extremely passionate about humanity and all the things that make us wonderful as human beings and preserving those uh, in a world of AI and tech and looking at how they can coexist um, with, you know, technology and how we can leverage technology to amplify human potential rather than replace it. And the other thing um, that defines who I am as a human being, I'm someone who just... Human human connection to me is one of the most powerful tools that we have available to us and what I continue to see in the work that I do is that opportunity lies at the other end of human connection and we are capable of so much more than what we actually realise and human connection and the daily practice of that, especially with random strangers, is one of the most um, powerful ways to build skills for the future and equally to realise your potential and impact the world if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. So you talk a lot about, you know, um, future-proofing um, your workplace and, and the future of work and um, often that, that can um, – people can feel like it's a scary thing, it's a daunting thing, it's an ominous thing. Um, what is it that excites you? Because, you know, I feel that you talk a lot about the exciting things about the future, um, in now and in the future. What excites you most about what's happening at the moment and about the future? I always think it's interesting when we talk about the future because um, with all the fear that sits around it, one of the things I think that we forget to check ourselves on is the fact that the future is not here yet. Mm. And therefore we have this unbelievable opportunity as individuals and collectively to actually um, influence the future in the way that we think best serves humanity. And so I think people being fearful um, and using fear as a barrier is one of the most detrimental things that we can do. It's how do we actually look at the opportunity and positively drive, you know, the right people towards helping us realise that. Um, so what's got me excited about the future? So many things. Um from a from a health tech perspective, you know, some of the, the things that I have seen in what AI can do in helping better the lives of people who before, you know, couldn't walk, mm. couldn't mm. see. Um, you know, I've seen recently technology where blind people have started to see through technology that sits in their mouth through taste, yeah, um, and thermal imaging. 
Like that to me is mind-blowing, to give someone eyes who's never had eyes before, um, to help people putting you know, implants in people's heads or AI in people's heads to actually help them walk when they haven't been able to walk for some time. Like I just think the miracles that I've seen that we – things – you know, the impossible is now possible. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I came back from Singularity, one of the things that that sort of opened my eyes to is that if we can imagine it, we can, we can now make it happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm, that has me so excited, you know, in terms of how we can help people that have in many ways been helpless before, um, how we can solve world problems that we, again, have, you know, had bar- significant barriers around and how technology and connecting people through technology around common issues um, is, is such a, an amazing opportunity to start to solve some of, of these problems. Um, the fact, I think, and I, I, I love to quote a stat, but I, I think it's something Something like another four billion people will come onto the internet in roughly around the next three to five years. Um, so that that connectivity and the access to education and learning for those four billion people that didn't have it before. I mean, what does that do? And and also their thoughts and their ideas and their aspirations and their influence on changing the world. I'm really excited about that. So. Um, yeah, they are all the, the things that kind of light me up and I just see, you know, infinite possibility in that space. Mm. I love when you talk because it gets me so excited and I'm sure anybody <laughs> listening to this will get really excited. But I wonder, why do you think people are so scared? Why do they sit in, in so much fear about what's going to happen or about what they, you know, are capable of doing? And how do you get people from that kind of fear mindset into that mindset of I'm excited, the future is exciting, I want to take that leap, you know, and and is it beyond just the things, you know, the way that you talk and how you encourage that excitement? I recently heard a quote and I can't remember who it was and it said, um, we are wired for survival, not for happiness. So our brain is, is basically operates on survival, survival. So we're, it's constantly, we are programmed and we have been since the caveman days. We are programmed to assess every single situation that presents itself for risk and reward. And that's why you're always, when you think of what you're thinking about in your everyday, you're constantly assessing what ifs, what ifs. Yeah. And so, so I think it was Tony Robbins recently said, you know, um, your brain's wired for survival, but happiness is up to you. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, if I could create one piece of tech, it would be um, an implant, an AI implant that would put self-accountability into every individual in the world. Imagine what that would do in the context of fear. And so when you understand, I think I'm fascinated by how the brain works and then how that drives our behaviour. Um, to the point where I'm almost considering studying neuroscience. Like that's how <laughs> fascinated I have become by this. And so how fear operates in the brain is, as I say, we're constantly looking at survival. So what happens is when a fear presents itself, we go back through our neural pathways to look at what's happened in that space in the past that we can relate to it and how that played out. And that often then determines how we respond or how we hold ourselves back. And so what I think what happens is we we as human beings strive for certainty. Yeah, We want to be in control. When we have certainty, we feel comfortable. Yeah, And so when uh, uncertainty presents, we get uncomfortable and often fear kicks in and we try and control it. And when we can't control it, sometimes it's more comfortable to either to retreat and even just, I call it ostrich syndrome, bury our heads in the sand. 
Um, so, you know, th- that's kind of how we, we respond to fear and how we respond to not having control and certainty. And I think the reality of the current environment is that we are in a space where people, there's so much that people held true that is so uncertain now. And people don't feel in control anymore. And most people are actually questioning how to remain relevant. Yeah. When pretty much everything they've known to be true, especially in a business sense, like the, I think of business leaders that have, you know, just sort of, cl- they've gone to uni, studied something and just climbed the ladder and they're sitting there on half a million dollars a year and they've run these large companies and basically they have to unlearn everything they know and start from scratch again in the context of the future that we are facing. Yeah. yeah? And then you, so that's an uncontrollable. And so I think, again, this is where ostrich syndrome presents, and I think this is why people are so afraid, is that there's no certainty and there's no control. And that's why I focus. So you talk about how do I teach people how to step into fear. We teach people how to get comfortable with discomfort and how to use fear as a lever rather than a lever for change rather than a barrier. So I honestly believe that if we can teach people how to learn to get to step into the discomfort of fear and embrace it, providing it's not life-threatening, I think we can empower them to realise, like I say, things that they never even imagined possible. Because if there is one thing I have experienced, be it for myself and all the the crazy things I've done, or for the people that I have taught, is that every time something feels uncomfortable now, I have learnt that it is a green light to step in. Because for me, and you would know this, I mean, for me, it is where the most magical things that have happened have have sort of you know come to life. Um, and so I try and teach people how to do that. And I mean, there's many ways in which we do that. It's really how do you get comfortable with uncertainty? Because that is the only constant we have in the future. Mm-hmm. And the empowerment that you receive and how you can impact yourself and others when you learn to look at fear from a very positive lens mm-hmm. and learn to just let go of control, it's amazing what it can do for not only you know the work that you do but also the life that you can create for yourself and the other thing I love is when when I step into fear I I was doing it more about personal growth but there is now science that says that by you know um you know leading by example and doing this stuff you inspire others especially so when I do what I do and I come out the other side and I'm smiling and I'm happy and you know it's been amazing people are watching and so many people now say to me, what you've done's inspired me to do X, Y, and Z. And I never imagined that was a byproduct. Mm. So by stepping into fear and realizing what's possible for yourself, you actually, if you've got kids, you inspire your kids. Mm. You inspire your friends. Like it's crazy, the on-flow effects um, of these behaviors. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was actually just thinking there are probably a lot of people out there who still who look at you and watch what you do and think, I could never do that. Oh, but she's so confident. Oh, but she's intelligent and, you know, done all these amazing things. I could never do that. So can you give an example of, of a particular situation, circumstance where you felt immense fear, um, an immense sense of fear and it, it really, it, it held you back, but you found a way of, you know, finding that courage, whether it's through people around you or just within yourself to take that leap to, you know, and, and kind of give that example for those out there who just kind of probably feel that imposter syndrome or look at you and go, but I just, I just could never do that. <laughs> so I could pull out an old story because there are many, but I'm going to step into vulnerability one more time and give you something that I, I haven't shared with anyone. Um, so one of my greatest fears is being overweight. 
So I was overweight most of my life, you know. I was 26 kilos heavier than what I am now. Up until the age of 26, I'm now 42. And then I made some fundamental shifts in my life in terms of diet, in terms of exercise, and I lost a hell of a lot of weight. But it's really funny how I can wake up every single day of my life thereafter, and every morning I wake up and I look in the mirror, and I still am not happy with what I see. And um, I'm still fearful every day when I wake up that I will be huge again. And it's not rational. It makes absolutely no sense. But it has taken me to the age of 42 and literally to this week um, to actually, not only that, it's also that that's sort of the way that you look at yourself in the mirror and the way that you speak to yourself. Whilst I'm very confident and very positive, I don't love what I see when I look in the mirror. I never have. And it's not healthy. And I, I know I'm not alone in this. And it's gotten to the point, and the other thing, it then perpetuates a certain type of behaviour. And so I have had an issue, and I have never said this out loud, I have had an issue with binge eating for years, yeah? So I will go through cycles where I eat amazingly well, and I'm uber, you know, healthy when it comes to exercise, I love it. But I go through stages where, you know, I am binge eating and grabbing anything that I can in the cupboard. And, like, it's embarrassing. If anyone saw it, I would be totally humiliated. And it's gotten to the point where just two days ago I went to my GP because it's taken me to 42 to actually realise that – or not realise, to actually acknowledge that this is a problem for me Mm. um, and deal with that fear of being fat again, yeah, and um, basically went to the GP on Monday and got what they call is it the, um, like a mental health plan yeah. because I said it's actually I'm waking up every morning and torturing myself about what I ate the day before. That's how crazy it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically have booked in to go and see an eating disorder um, healthcare or practitioner or a psychologist in two weeks' time. And I can't tell you. like So that's sharing that is a massive fear because I've never said that out loud to anyone other than to myself, right? But at the same time, I cannot tell you how relieved I was to book that appointment with the GP, to then book the appointment with the psychologist as soon as I walked out of the GP because I couldn't do it quick enough, and to actually put that in the room today because, like I say, now that it's out there, it's almost like I'm accountable, I need to own it. Mm. So it's not as scary as what I thought. <laughs> Amazing. Penny, thank you for sharing that. And I think, um, you know, the what I love about you and I think why you're such an incredible role model is because – A, you are vulnerable. You share your vulnerabilities. You do it publicly. You do it, you know, amongst your network and you're, and you're happy to, you're very real. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, putting, putting yourself out there is, is really important. Um, and that vulnerability is really important. And then you act, you know, you, you, I think like for somebody like me, I always used to think, oh, successful people never felt fear and never felt nerves and never felt self doubt. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who feel that. And they can look at somebody like you and see the incredible success that you've had. I mean, you know, talking on the TEDx stage only, you know, TEDx Melbourne two weeks ago and think how, you know, how did she do that? And I, you know, as a good friend of yours who who talks to you a lot, I just know you go out there and you do it and and you you feel the vulnerability, you sit in it, you own it, you ask the question, you persist, you do it again and and that's how you do it. And so I like big thank you for what you do because it really does give a lot of people around you permission and courage to do the same. Um, so I want to ask you about singularity. So you um, went to a singularity conference in, um, at NASA and, um, yeah, tell us a bit about kind of how you got there and, and what you learnt. I got there. So again, 
if you had said to me six months ago this was possible, I would have said you were nuts. And so I practice this thing called rejection therapy. Yeah, and I advocate it to anyone if you want to actually learn how to thrive in the future. Yeah, so for all the amazing things that you talk about that I've done, yeah, and I'm I'm always it's, I'm always humbled by people talking about this stuff. But I, I mean, you know this as well. There are a hundred things that sit behind all of that that I've been rejected from. Massive things, yeah. But I keep going. Okay, so don't just look at the show reel. Seriously, if you want me to unpack it, I can give you the long list of stuff that I've been rejected from. So what happened earlier this year? I mean, I've been very interested in AI and technology and how that is impacting how we work and live and how it's going to continue to do so, but at a rapid pace in the next five years. So at the start of this year, I became aware of Singularity University, and it was basically the top AI and tech innovators coming together um, to actually look at how they can solve some of the biggest issues in the world. Like, how do we use AI and tech as a force for good? And I was like, oh, my God. These are my people. And so I looked it up. I read a lot of stuff. And then I saw that they were going to bring uh, a conference to Australia for the first time. Couldn't sign up quick enough. And I can tell you I don't go to many conferences unless I'm speaking at them anymore because, yeah, I, I don't want to be talked at anymore. I actually want to take action and learn how to take action around things that I perhaps am not familiar with. So I went to the conference and I was blown away and I was like, this is where things are heading. I need to understand as much of this as possible from all of these experts. So then I got online and I'd heard about their executive leadership program and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is crazy. I knew there was an application process. I thought there would be so many people applying for this. Um, and also, even when you get in, it's a massive investment. Yeah, I think it costs like 20000 Australian dollars to go, which as a small business owner, I've never spent $20,000 on my personal development. So I just thought, stuff it, I'll apply. Yeah, and then I never intended, I never expected to get accepted and I never intended to go. And so I applied. And seriously, within a couple of weeks, they came back and said, you've been accepted. And I thought, oh, they're probably short on candidates this month, right? So I was like, oh, God, now I've got to pay the 20 grand. And I rung up my dad, who's the biggest tight ass in the world, and I told him, and he turned around to me and he said, you have to go. And I was like, if he's telling me to spend this money, I'm meant to be in that room. So I just bit the bullet and I did it, yeah? And it was so funny as soon as I did that, and this happens every time in my business, it's so funny how the universe works mm-hmm. because we, I, after that, I had the best month in my business I've ever had. That, that 20 grand became nothing. It was really interesting. So I accepted and then basically turned up in the room and it was pretty much the most unbelievable. The other participants were, you know, leaders of some unbelievable companies from around the world, very senior people doing, you know, trying to do great things and trying to learn about the future. And I was like, how did I end up in a room with these people? And what blew me away is I was the only person in the space that I'm in. I think I was the only entrepreneur in the room out of 90 participants. And a lot of people there had actually applied multiple times to get in and had been knocked back. And I'd gotten through on the first round. I was like, this is really interesting. So what did I learn? Oh, gosh. All the things that I, everything I learned, I didn't expect to learn. So what I learned was that it was a huge validation of the work that I'm doing around humanizing the future of work. I learned that the world is very good at trying to help people understand um, AI and technology, but we are not so great at teaching people how to understand, how to prepare humans to actually adapt to what we are creating and do it off a foundation of consciousness. I also learned that, um, AI and technology, even with all of the research that I do, is far more progressed than what people know. I think that probably 70% to 80% of the population has no idea how far advanced this stuff is. And so creating awareness is a massive opportunity as a catalyst in order to get people to change and change quickly because we need to. Um, I learned that crazy is only crazy until it's proven possible. 
the people that were on those stages talking about their level of expertise in neuroscience, AI, robotics, yeah, pretty much every single one of them had been told they were crazy, yeah, until they'd actually pulled off something unbelievable. And so that made me realise we need a hell of a lot more crazy in the world. And most people are hiding their crazy because they're worried about the judgment of others. Um, and the other thing I found fascinating is I learned that we judge AI very differently from what we judge humans. And what I mean by that, we were presented with some very interesting ethical scenarios, um, whether we would allow AI to make decisions, be it in sentencing of prisoners um, and their propensity to reoffend, or be it in the treatment of patients in hospitals. And in both scenarios, the data showed that AI was significantly more accurate than humans in making these decisions. Um, and yet, so even if AI was at a 95% accuracy and humans were only at a 50%, we still didn't want the AI to have control. Um, and I thought that was an interesting challenge in itself. And the reason people don't want it to have control is because it means we're, at, we're not in control. So it comes back to what we were saying earlier about certainty and being in control of things. And the other thing that I found really interesting is my understanding is that once you create an algorithm and you overlay machine learning, and as that machine learns and learns and learns, even the person that created the algorithm doesn't understand how that works anymore once it, it progresses. So if no one understands the algorithm and the decision-making process and, and that as it evolves, I mean, you are giving up complete and utter control. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was fascinating. And the other thing that blew me away was, and I've been strongly passionate about this for a long time, is um, the ethical piece and the lack of ethic, ethical regulation around technology. Um, and actually just because tech can do things, why are we not asking whether we actually want it and whether it's in the best interests of humanity? And the fact that pretty much no one that I've seen, well, not no one, but there's hardly anyone that I see that's developing amazing technology that's actually looking at the mental health of our society and whether what they are developing is going to enhance or actually significantly diminish the mental health of our society. And I think fundamentally that should underpin every decision we make around technology because, as we already know, the mental health or the level of anxiety and depression is at epidemic proportions and so much of it can be correlated to the way we have unconsciously created and engaged with technology. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. Wow. So, yeah, amazing. So to bring it now to the kind of since then and the work that you're doing now and you were talking about the um, adaptability quotient, what does it look like if we um, don't have that adaptability compared like what what does a person look like who doesn't learn that that adaptability and have that adaptability equation to in comparison to what it does and will look like um, as you implement that and and really you know um, drive that movement and teach that to people I get goosebumps when I say this, but if you want a visual of what someone who doesn't um, embrace adaptability and can't reinvent themselves in order to thrive in the environment that we will find ourselves in in the next five to ten years, I think basically just imagine someone on a couch and instead of watching Foxtel, they've got a VR headset on, but it won't even be a VR headset anymore because we know that it'll probably be just contact lenses in the next five to ten years. And basically they'll be living in another world. They'll spend their days pretending to be someone else because the real world just won't suit them anymore. So that makes me feel ill. Yeah. 
um, because, you know, we now know, I mean, I speak to VR developers and they say that um, one of the biggest challenges some of them have got is that they spend so much time in the VR world that they're now finding it hard to distinguish between reality and the virtual world. And my understanding is that's because of the way our visual receptors work in our brains. So that's what I think, for me, that's the worst case scenario. Um, so how do we help people avoid that scenario? I don't want to see people left behind. And I think we are at a unique point in time where we have the propensity to either help people evolve and adapt and offer foundation of purpose and meaning, yeah, so that they can do things that actually fulfil them rather than just do what is the default position. Um, and if we don't help people adapt and do these things, we are going to end up... You know, I get asked to speak on a lot of panels around equality and gender. I actually think it's not about how we close the gap. I think the biggest risk we have is that gap widening. So how do we ensure that that doesn't happen? And here's the thing for those of you who are like, I'm adaptable, I'll be fine. The more people that don't get on board, the more people that get left behind, it becomes all of our problems. Yeah, because we have to, we have to support these people. We have to deal with the mental health issues. You know, there are so many impacts that it will have on the rest of us. And if society, I mean, extreme, yeah, but if society goes to chaos and the people who have and the ones who have not, you know, the people who have have to live in gated communities, which we have seen evolve in certain, you know, environments, I don't think that's an ideal living. I don't want to live in that. I don't want to be rich and live in a gated community and have all these people outside who are impoverished and not thriving. That, to me, is not the world that I want to live in. Um, so that's why I think it's so important. But in terms of how we teach it, I think we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, and I'm happy to be challenged. I don't think we have a lot of time. And I think the time to start skilling people in this stuff is now. And when I met with the Senate earlier this year, I said the biggest opportunity the government has is to actually skill people in adaptability. And when I say adaptability, it is skilling people in intentional change, not just adapting for the sake of adapting. It's working out what gives you purpose and meaning, yeah, and skilling people in how to make that change in a world that is constantly evolving. Um, and I think it needs to be taught in schools, and we're not doing that. I think it needs to be taught to the highest risk um, jobs of automation, and we're not doing that at the moment. And then it needs to be taught to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And what I've realised in my work is obviously there's a lot of people that don't want to change. They want to be the ostriches. But the most powerful way I've noticed, and it's unfortunate, but I'm quite happy to use it as a lever, the biggest catalyst we have to create change in the propensity and the motivation is fear. Because every time I show people what's really going on and how it's going to impact not only how they work, how they live, but equally their children, it's amazing how quickly they will shift their mindset and behaviour and say, what can I do to make things better? Mm. Amazing. What does success look like for you in the next five to ten years? This is going to sound really simplistic. Success, my foundation of success is driven by the way that my son speaks about me. So my son said to me not so long ago, I love you just the way you are, mum. Yeah, he's always says to me, you don't need to be tiny. You know, he said, the, the thing that I love about you most is the fact that you're so cuddly. Yeah. And so I think to me, success in the next five to 10 years is, I think of him in 10 years, he'll be 18 years old. If he's talking, if his friends say, tell us about your mum, who's your mum? If he's sitting there saying, I love her just the way she is. And still sitting there saying, as he says now, my mum makes the world happy. That, for me, is a measure of success, if he's still saying that sort of stuff. And I think the other measure of success for me is that 
I do want to change the world, and without a doubt, yeah, I want to change the world, and I'm going to do my damnedest, and the world for the, for the better, yeah, and I'm going to do my damnedest to make it happen. And so for me, success is that if I leave this world and it's just a little better than what I entered, then for me, that's success. Awesome. I know we could talk forever. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask one final question, um, which is human hour. So that's tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. What is human hour? Why are you doing it? What do you hope to achieve from it? Yeah. So by the time people watch this, it will have been and gone, but it will definitely happen again. Hopefully it will happen every week <laughs> or every day. So, um, I spoke earlier about it, passionate about human connection and how the lack of it is impacting our society. And I always say we've never been more technologically connected yet humanly disconnected. And so um, about eight weeks ago, I was like, every time I speak about this, people just come up and go, oh, my God, it resonates. And I know how it's impacting mental health. And not just, you know, in everyone, everyone I speak to, it, it's like is ang anxious or suffering from depression. And I'm like, enough. So eight weeks ago, I had this crazy idea. And I'm like, you know what, what if we just got people to start humanly connecting again? And what if we created Earth Hour for humans? One hour for people to switch off from the tech and actually reconnect humanly and not talk about how important they are or what their, you know, what their title is or any of that sort of stuff. What if we just got them talking about who they are as human beings? Yeah. And, and connecting over things that light them up or shared passion and things like that. And so I just put it out into the universe and started talking to all my corporate clients. I started talking at events. Um, and it went nuts. Like I'm blown away. As I say, we've not spent, any money on promoting this it's been conversations and word of mouth and a bit of social media and for it to get the traction that it's got in just eight weeks it's unbelievable and so tomorrow basically we've got some of the biggest companies in australia and you know also some huge companies in the world that are switching off their people and also a lot of individuals and schools switching off in order to switch back on humanly and the intent is not, yes, we'll do it as an annual event, but it's to create awareness, to get people to actually start doing this every day and actually talking to random strangers again. You know, we're told not to talk to strangers as kids. I find that the most amazing things happen when we talk to random strangers and everyone's got a story and something interesting to say. And sometimes a conversation with a random stranger can be the difference between that person feeling isolated and lonely for a day or not. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of what Human Hour is. I mean, my next crazy idea if we really want people to humanly connect, is actually get governments switching off the internet for a whole day once a week. Imagine what that would do. So that's that's crazy, but you know what? I I actually wouldn't be surprised if we end up getting to that. Mm -hmm. um, and I lied. I have one more question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were talking about this before offline yeah. about, um, you know, kind of the younger generation and, and how mm. we bring them into the conversation. And that got me really excited. And so my last question, my actual last question to you is around how are you bringing in, you know, your, your son, Sax, that younger generation of people into what you're doing and making sure that they are actually, um, a significant part of how we, we create the future. So I have to be completely honest, all the work that I'm doing is to basically deliver my master plan, which is to fundamentally shift the education system. Because at the moment, what we are doing is trying to fix um, embedded behaviours and habits that are not going to serve us in the future. So the best way to um, change that or prevent that is to actually shift a generation. And I think education is a brilliant platform for us to reinvent um, reinvent what is relevant for children in the future so that they can thrive. And that's 
ultimately that's what I want to do that's my end game and so I again I you have these you connect dots you have these light bulb moments and um, I did a talk last week with a number of senior executives at Deloitte and I was like apologized as soon as they got in the room the session was on humanizing the future of work I've done a lot of talk around this but I have played brought kids in in the past and I said I can't believe we're sitting here talking about the future and we don't have the future in the room mm. And so for me, that was one of those moments where basically I don't want to do anything in the future where we're talking about the future of work, where we don't have the next generation in the room. And I think one of the biggest opportunities we have, not only with the young people, but equally with older people who are living much longer and who have been sidelined by the technological era, is um, intergenerational connection. So the people want diversity, and we're very focused on certain types of diversity, but I think one of the greatest opportunities is diversity of generation and reconnecting the generations and leveraging what's wonderful, wonderful about each of those generations to help each other understand, empathise and problem-solve some of the biggest issues we're going to face. So for me, having children in boardrooms, having children talking about the future of work, helping organisations um, think differently in this space because what this generation wants is fundamentally different from what we have created. And so I'm all about um, connecting those generations in order to solve the big problems and actually create a future of work that helps people thrive or a future not of work because a lot of people may not have to work in the future. So let's help them unpack that and let's help kids unpack that so that if a universal basic income does come to, into play and a lot of people only work part-time or, you know, uh, you know, they don't have to work at all. We don't have all these people sitting on the couch with VR headsets. We actually have people out in society giving back in ways before that they couldn't do. Penny, I think oh, yeah. I think you're brilliant. And honestly, I think the the world is, you know, it's a great place and it's exciting times to have somebody like you driving this kind of change and these kind of movements and igniting conversation and galvanising action. So thank you. You inspire all of us. Thank you for joining us today on the Human First Podcast. If you loved your experience, please take a moment to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher and provide us with a rating. If you'd like to access the show notes or learn more about what we're up to in the context of humanizing the future, jump on over to humanfirstpodcast.com. See you next week.